Hey everybody, welcome to the first ever episode of the Weird Corpus podcast. I'm uh, one of your hosts. My name is Johnny Hotcakes. And I'm Emma Nicole Smith. And we have a great episode for you today, the inaugural episode, the very, very first one. We have a great guest today. Matt Manning is going to be with us, and we're here, and we're going to talk everything you want to know about what's going on in this country, Black Lives Matter, and we're just going to hit it hard. Emma, you ready? I'm ready. Welcome to Weird Corpus. You're listening to Weird Corpus. I'm one of your hosts, Johnny Hotcakes. And I'm Emma Nicole Smith. Weird Corpus podcast talks about everything art, entertainment, and culture in Corpus Christi. And you'll get to meet all of the people that make Corpus a little bit different. Welcome to Weird Corpus. Hey everybody, welcome to the first ever episode of the Weird Corpus podcast. I am Johnny. And I'm Emma. And we want to welcome you uh, to our podcast this is the first one of a series that we're doing uh hopefully for as long as possible the very first of many so is the goal people are probably wondering what is weird corpus emma why don't you take us what what that is so weird corpus is a monthly publication that exposes the counterculture of artists unique businesses and entertainment to the city and what we're trying to really do with weird corpus is expand this concept of what art culture and entertainment is in the coastal band in the corpus christi area so uh without further ado we're going to get this podcast started are you ready i'm ready to go well we have a great guest with us here today uh on the first ever episode we are bringing on matt manning hey matt how you doing today i'm i'm good i'm glad to be here and i'm so honored to be on your inaugural podcast i did not know that this was the first one so i'm, I'm honored to be here with you guys well we're we really wanted you on um we have so much to talk about to cover today and you so know even i think it was when we've had this in the works for a minute now and you were one of the first people that were on our list well i appreciate it yeah. so kind of you absolutely so let's get started um we want to learn a little bit more about you though so um can you tell people that are listening out there like Matt Manning, let's let's. What are you doing right now? Who are you? Sure. Well, let me first say that I'm from the 512, but not Corpus Christi. I was born and raised up the street in Austin. So um, my parents went to Texas and they uh, met as undergrads, uh, graduated, got married, stayed in Austin. So my sister and I were both born and raised there in Austin. When I graduated from high school, um, I was blessed enough to go to Howard University in D.C. I was really interested in studying government, and I always wanted to become a lawyer, which is what I do now. Um, but I was thankful for the opportunity to move to D.C. and go school there. So I went to Howard, and then I was lucky enough to get a full scholarship to law school at the University of Toledo in Ohio. So I moved from Austin at that time to Ohio and uh, went to school there, did my last year of law school at Texas Tech. And when I got out, I started my own firm for about two months in, at home in Austin, but I got a job offer down here in Corpus. And I hadn't lived in Texas continuously for almost 10 years. So I wanted to be close to my family and very close to my family. Um, so, you know, this was a, a good opportunity to be here, be close to them, and to be on the water. I love the beach. I love the water. And I thought that was a great, you know, nexus of some of my interests. Yeah. So tell, me, tell us a little bit about, um, so how long have you been here in Corpus Christi right now? And how did you come into this game? What did you start off doing as your first job right here right at the bat? Sure. So I moved to Corpus in February of 2013. And it's funny, I moved down in like four or five days. So basically, I came down and found an apartment like kind of at the 11th hour and got that situated and moved down to work for the city of Corpus. Um, 
as an assistant city attorney. So basically I prosecuted traffic offenses and that kind of thing and then, you know, moved on to other positions. Yeah. And what about, can you tell us a little bit about, like, what you're doing right now? So what sure. are you doing? So now I'm a, an, an attorney with Webcase and PC, which is uh, a 40-plus-year firm here in Corpus Christi. Um, I just started working with them about six months ago. Prior to that, I was in my second stint at the DA's office. I was actually the first assistant DA in the DA's office, which means I was right under the DA. I managed the office. And prior to that, I was in private practice with the elected DA, Mark Gonzalez, who's a uh, a good friend of both of ours, as you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked with Marks, and, and from working with Mark, um, Webb Kaysen offered me a job. So what were some influences when you were growing up that gave you this drive? Because all of these accomplishments are not just things that, I don't know, like I believe that you need like a sort of driving force to pursue that those levels of accomplishment. What what was a big influence for you? So obviously my family, my big mama, number one, big mama, papa. Uh, my dad's one of six siblings, all of whom, for the most part, live in the Austin area. So I say my family because in my family I had an aunt that was pursuing a PhD in education, another aunt that was a teacher, an aunt, I mean an uncle, excuse me, who's a deputy sheriff in Travis County. So I had people who were always, you know, implanting in me, it's important to try to achieve things. And more so than that, to bring the whole hood with you, as, as they say, you know, any opportunity I get is an opportunity that we get. So my drive was kind of you know, cultivated from that, but also at home, my parents, my father's a Baptist minister, and my mom is a longtime business owner and uh, works in the insurance field now. And they both had just accomplished everything. Like my dad was like, I don't know, top 10 in his class. My mom was like salutatorian or something. So both of them were just incredibly ambitious. And I think they did a great job of exposing my sister and I to everything that's out there in the world. You know, one of the things I really try to impart on my own children is the world is an enormous place and you live in a tiny dot of it, but there's so much to see, so much to do and so much to learn from. So also people at church, um, obviously big names, Dr. King, Malcolm X, um, some of the people on the national scale, but more so than that, just the deacons and the the fake grandparents. You know, I tell people I have like 18 sets of parents, 18 sets of Uh grandparents. You know, I'm sure you guys know about that. Yeah. Yeah. And my friend's parents and all of that. So just everybody kind of poured into me. So the community, you know, comes together for an individual, helps them achieve where they need to go in life, and then in turn, you return that back onto your community. And I think you've done a pretty good job of that so far. You've been down here in Corpus for seven years, Mm -hmm. and people are looking to you to be a community leader, right? And that... That goes beyond just um, your job. I think people want to hear from you. People want to rely on you. People are looking to you for answers right now, especially in this day and age, right? Like there's some stuff going on in the country that is so wild. So, you know, we who knew where we we were going to be here, um, you know, 10 years ago in this this social climate, this political climate right now. Right. So. We're going to touch on that a little bit later in the episode, but I want to get to know Matt Manning. You know, sure. so like you you mentioned you you are a product of your community, your environment, your parents. What what's ne- what you have three kids now. Mm-hmm. What are you doing to what sh- can you tell us like how you're preparing p- your people, your little people right now for this world? What's it like? You know, it's 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 scary um, for a number of reasons, some of which I'm assuming we'll talk about in earnest in a minute. But I actually have three sons, and um, all three of my sons are of mixed race, um, and they phenotypically look, you know, like minorities. Essentially, obviously, they look black, and my, my oldest son um, 
looks like he's Hispanic, okay? So the reason I say that is I have to have uh, a lot of consciousness around what it takes to put young men in the world that look a certain way who will be perceived a certain way. And that's an uncomfortable reality, but it's the truth. My father had the conversation with me more times than I can count. Son, you're going to be expected to act a, cer act a certain way. People are going to look at you a certain way. And I think that the onus is on me as their father in all uh, aspects to be intentional. You know, everything that I do now is for my children, and everything is about putting ducks in a row for them to make them good men and men who contribute, and not only men who contribute, but men who think about the community at large. I tell people all the time, I have a law degree, which essentially means we have a law degree. If you're in trouble, you call me. I'll do everything I can to help you. Obviously, ethically, I have certain um, obligations, and there's certain things I can't do. But just this week, for instance, not to pat myself on the back, but I helped stop an eviction. I mean, a guy who was having trouble with the place that he was living, I didn't know him from Adam. He called me and he said, you're the guy I'm supposed to call. And then it became what I thought was my responsibility to help him. Right. So I hope that I imbue that into my children because every day of my life, I saw my father and my mother do that. To give you an example, when I was at Howard, I had an old 1988 Honda Prelude that they bought me, my first car. <laughs> and I used to drive it all the time. And um, right after Hurricane Katrina, I got home and my car wasn't there. And I said, yo, you know, what happened to the car? My dad was like, well, son, you know, some people from New Orleans came in and they needed it, you know, so we gave them the car. And I remember thinking, like, that's dope. I'm not even mad that you got rid of the car because, you know, what? we got other cars I can drive. But I like the idea that I come from a community that is about helping each other. And I think a lot of that is really the African aesthetic that runs in my veins and runs in a lot of our veins. It's just us, not just Africans, but us as people, you know, have this community aesthetic that drives us. So that is the primary driver for my life and the primary driver for me as a father. That's really good. Uh, I also want you, – you touched on Howard. So I want to go back to that. Let's sure. let's go back in time to whenever you were at uh, college, right? So I I know a lot about Howard from you know reading about it from uh, TVs and movies and all this stuff. You know, people talk about historically black colleges now. We get a lot of visibility on Netflix. You know what it's like at a black university. Can you walk us through? Why did you go to Howard? How'd that happen? What can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Uh, what that was like? Because that's clear across the country, and that's top tier stuff. Yeah, man, I, and it's it's incredible. It's really kind of hard to put into words how much Howard poured into me and how much I got from it. But I would be I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you the truth that when I first got there, I didn't know if it was the right place for me, and the reason is because. Howard is a historically black college, but primarily a lot of the people that go there are the best and brightest, if you will, black students at their respective schools around the country. So you have, I wasn't valedictorian or anything, but I did pretty well in high school, and you have a bunch of people who are similarly situated who come to the school. So everyone is kind of vying for the top spot, and that's good because it, it really reinforces the sense of ambition, but it can also create a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. I mean, to give you an example, I quote, managed a campaign for student government in college where we spent five grand to get people elected president of the student government. People don't think of that kind of thing happening, but it was like presidential politics on the national level. And that's because the people who go to Howard by and large are people who have achieved very highly and who want to continue achieving. So I think there's kind of a dichotomy there, but the way it came about is I wanted to study government and I started researching Howard and I loved it and I thought it was a good place for me to go and I applied and thankfully I got in and went and made lifelong friends, many of whom are, you know, changing the game now all across the country and the world. Well, we want to talk a little bit about some of your, um, you know, your actions here in Corpus Christi. 
how can you and how can you really encourage uh, like the youth here in Corpus, the culture, right? You're you're doing it with your family. What's what's your words of like to the to the young people of our city? Well, that's a great question. One of the first things I would say is reach out to people that are doing what you want to do. And that doesn't mean just being a lawyer. I think sometimes we put way too much emphasis on professional degrees and professional jobs. If there is no shame whatsoever being a plumber, being an electrician, being a lawn care operator, if you have a passion for it, you go do it. But find people who are doing it best in that field and reach out to them. I tell people all the time, this is not an invitation, it's an order. If I can help you in any way, if there's you want to be a lawyer, you know, and that's really a lot of the experience you and I had, um, John, is mm-hmm. that if you want to be a lawyer, I'll do everything I can to help you be a lawyer. I'll explain to you what it's actually like. I'll help you write your recommendation letters. I'll tell you what classes you need to be looking at in school because at the end of the day, that's what somebody did for me. So I feel I have a, a moral imperative to do the same. So if you're a kid out there and you're interested in anything, whatever it is, you want to you know, operate a podcast, we'll call Russell and say, Russell, what do I need to do to run a podcast? How can I help And can out? I come watch you? And can I watch right on Corpus? Can I watch how you develop weird uh, Corpus, you know, Johnny and Emma? Like, I want to be in business. How do you make a business plan? Yeah. Um, I think we have a duty to pass that information on to other people. That's what people have done for me. So I would say reach out. And, you know, what's interesting, most people don't think about it. When you reach out to them, most people are not only flattered that you reached out to them, but they're willing to help you, um, provided you're willing to do whatever the work is. And I think that's also important. I think you have to come to the table and say, I want to learn, but I'm also willing to do the work. And if you do both of those things, you'll have no problem. I think that's very interesting. So a lot of, I don't know if, uh, I'm just going to tell people that you were my first mentor uh, on my summer uh, internship from law school, right? So every Every uh, law school student does an internship over the summer, and over that summer you go to a law firm or you go to the district attorney's office. I spent my first summer with Matt Manning doing criminal defense work here in Corpus Christi in Nueces County, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was a really fun summer. That opened up my eyes to a lot of the stuff that goes on here that we don't see, right? Mm -hmm. So there's I always thought that there was two sides of society in Corpus Christi. There's the visible side, and then there's the invisible side. And when you're doing criminal defense work or prosecution or in law enforcement, you get to see that invisible side a lot more Mm -hmm. than a lot of the other people that live here. Do you know what I'm talking about, and can you speak on that? What do you think? Is that a real thing? I think you're exactly right. I think it is a real thing, and I think what's interesting about that, though, is that there's not really a clear line of demarcation between that visible side and the invisible side. And what I mean is you have people that vacillate between those two things all the time. People who have criminal issues in their past, who are living better lives now, who have kind of straddled that line or who are clearly on one side now. And I think that's important as a person who's a public servant, especially as a prosecutor, but also as a criminal defense attorney to remember that all of it is fluid. A lot of times people are living in different spaces at different times of their lives. Um, But I will tell you that it's really eye-opening, all the things that happen on a daily basis in Corpus and in cities larger than Corpus um, every day, you know, in terms of crime and criminal activities that happen, and also in terms of things that don't feel quite right, that they can't necessarily prove. You know, there's a lot of gray space, um, and I think it's been very interesting to operate in that. And unfortunately, it's also kind of created some disillusionment for me because when you're around that all the time, you start to wonder if the human, you know, condition is 
is a depraved one, right? And yeah. it's it's not. We know that it isn't, but uh, an onslaught of that I think can be mentally taxing. I, I know what you mean by that. So there is always um, there's I, politically right here in 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 a Nueces County in the country right now. Uh, there's a lot of you know divisive like divisive rhetoric going around you know people one way or the other politically divided um i haven't seen this in my lifetime i'm sure it happens uh every generation has their moment right maybe this is our moment right here but what i really want to explore and we'll get to this in in a little bit later in the show too is how are how are you dealing with that how are you dealing with the political divisiveness as a community leader, what's it feel like? I mean, is that pressure on you? What's going on? Yeah, I feel immense pressure. And, you know, uh, I long ago made to, made a commitment to myself that I'd be honest at a fault no matter what. So I say that to say I'm struggling right now. I mean, not like really mentally, you know, can't function or anything, but I'm going through it because I feel like I'm in a lot of different places at once. I feel a lot of very strong emotions, and I also feel – the effect that it's having on previous relationships. And what I mean is I was a prosecutor before, right? Mm -hmm. So when a former prosecutor, especially one that people are used to seeing in a, in a public space, starts saying that we have issues with um, policing that need to be addressed, mm -hmm. then you can imagine that I become a pariah. And that's kind of a difficult thing when people that you've had meaningful relationships with now say, well, I feel like you're turning on me. Um, when in reality, I was always the guy who was like, look, I got a problem with how this is happening, with how this is happening. Um, but I feel like, um, you know, I'm dealing with that, frankly. And frankly, I'm also dealing with the fact that Corpus doesn't have a large black population. So I feel like I have even more responsibility on my shoulders to always be on point, to always represent my people well, represent my community well, but also to tell the truth no matter what. And I think a lot of times that can create some tension and some pressure. So I'm dealing with that, you know, every day I get home, I tell my better half, I'm like, you know, baby, I'm struggling with this or this is going yeah. on this kind of way. Um, but people are doing it around the country. And frankly, it doesn't surprise me because people have had this this tension and this frustration for a very long time that's now bubbling over. And I think we've been intellectually dishonest in our country. So we're at this point of inflection because we can't really ignore the issues anymore. I agree. So. Emma, what, what do we got next for Matt? I know we have some fun stuff today. We do. We have a lot of fun stuff. So after the break, we're going to have a couple fun little games we're going to throw at Matt. So we're going to lighten it up a little bit, have some fun. So we'll be back shortly. I just want to take a minute to talk about Weird Corpus. What exactly is Weird Corpus? Well, first of all, it's a microzine. It's a monthly publication that exposes the counterculture of artists, unique businesses, and entertainment to the city. We drop off an issue every art walk at local businesses in downtown Corpus Christi to give these people a platform of art, music, and culture in a readable, tiny format. You can find us on social media at Weird Corpus. Follow us to find out where we're dropping these issues off at. Or you can follow us on the web, www.weirdcorpus.com. Every issue has its own artist with a free print inside. Pick up a copy of Weird Corpus today. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Weird Corpus podcast. We're here with Matt Manning still. and we, What's up, Matt? Yeah. What's going on, man? Hi. I'm so honored to be in the <laughs> building. So. so we want to play a game with you. 
And this is this game is called Matt responds to Facebook comments. <laughs> so we're gonna read some of the most um, fascinating. What other words would we use? Yeah, I would say insightful commentary from the general public. Uh huh. Insightful, intriguing. Just stellar behavior from the internet <laughs> I don't want to overstep my bounds. Are these comments that have actually come to me before? Yes. yes. Oh, okay. So yeah. you have my actual response. Yes, we do. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, so what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to do it off the dome now. So okay. basically what we're going to do is I'm going to read you a Facebook comment that you received on your Facebook page, and we're going to address it. I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's also kind of serious. This is genius. I love it. All right. So first up, I'm not, I'm not going to name any names. Maybe just a first name. I'll read the first no, name. No, you don't need to read their name. All right. Here's Facebook commenter number one. He needs to have his law license revoked. <laughs> he is basically inciting violence and rioting. His firm should let him go. What would you like to tell that person today? Well, I'd like to tell that person that, one, if you believe in any part of the Constitution, you got to believe in all of it. So, person, if you've ever said, oh, I believe the Second Amendment gives me a right to own a gun, well, frankly, it also gives you the right to assemble and to say what you want and not have it abridged by the government and also to not have an establishment of religion. So it's part and parcel. And I would also say that the namesake of my firm was at the rally where I spoke, and uh, he was not only... Uh, you know, pleased with what I said, but he actually called my father and told my father I had done a good job. Yeah, because that was actually very widely shared on Facebook. Number one, you said, you know, I, if you are arrested or accused out here, right? Um, I will personally help you for free on your on, for pro bono. So, pro bono means representation is not paid for. Yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to belabor the point, but the thing that was so interesting about that is one I had caveats in there that said I reserve the right to not represent you if I think you're not in earnest, if I don't think you're out there bona fide, you know, and and, and protesting number one, and if you're inciting violence, and number two, um, the reality is people get arrested at mass action events all the time for things they didn't do. So what I didn't want is people who felt like they wanted to go and share their peace, who were afraid of getting arrested improperly. And frankly, they needed somebody that knows what they're doing, and I know what I'm doing. So, Because we have seen video from across the country of yep. various protests where peaceful protesters right. are being attacked. And then uh, what what happened to those people's rights? Why, why are those people's rights being violated? Are they being violated? And you would step up to the plate to help these peaceful protesters do that. Yeah, exactly. And, and frankly, you know, the reality of it is protest in general in this country – Protest in general is disruptive. It's inherently disruptive. So even the term peaceful, I mean, I'm not in any way encouraging rioting and looting. I would not be doing that. I don't think people need to be committing crimes, and I would hope they aren't. But even the implication that if it's not, quote, peaceful, it's somehow not justifiable protest, you can not be committing crimes but be disruptive, be loud, be in people's faces, and be you know ardent about your position. And if you look at America that's whence America came. The Boston Tea Party was exactly that. So I think we have some intellectual dishonesty when we don't talk about the fact that this very country was born from that kind of action. And let me stop, because I'm sure you have another comment. Well, we have comment number two. Comment number two, here we go. Just remember, hate creates hate. 
and you still have to live here. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. What is that? I kind of, you that know, mean? that's kind of ominous, right? That's kind of threatening, you right? You still have to live you here. You still have to live here, Manning. If I see you at Subway ordering that chicken teriyaki, and I'm going to give you a piece of my and mind. You better, <laughs> and you better not ask for all that extra sauces on there, too. Like I know. Them banana peppers are extra, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, like... Hate creates hate. Let's let's unbox that real quick. Sure. Hate creates hate. This guy is saying, just remember, hate creates hate. But what hate is he talking about? So is he talking about a, a racist system set up, which to me is what hate is, creates hate that trickles down to people wanting revenge? Is that what he means? No, of course not. What he's talking about is he's talking about the knee-jerk reaction we have in this country when people talk about races, racism or anything race-related, right? There's this knee-jerk reaction that says, oh, black people are talking about black people and black issues. That inherently means that they're either calling me racist or they're somehow being, quote, reverse racist, which is BS, right? Because if you look at it, racism requires a system, requires power, um, the implementation of power through a system to actually subjugate, right? So even if we're talking about prejudice or about racism, that kind of thing bothers me because talking about systemic issues, talking about systemic underfunding of education, talking about uh, terrible and disparate com criminal justice outcomes is not inherently hateful. The fact that it makes you uncomfortable, if that's what you're making tantamount to hate, then that's your problem. But that's not saying that I'm being hateful, and that's what I think that gentleman was speaking to when he made his thinly veiled threat Kind of like the text messages I got in the wee hours of the night telling me to, quote, go fuck myself and that they buy me a ticket out of town whenever I wanted it. Mm. That's reminiscent of what you saw in the civil rights movement. I'm not saying by any means I'm Dr. King or anything like that, but that same kind of behavior that's intended to intimidate is what I was experiencing in advance of me speaking at the rally. And, and that kind of thing is just completely, um, you know, disrespectful and unwarranted. So, so here's... Uh, the last one, the last comment, I had to say the best I love one. this game. This the is a great fire. Game. This is genius. You're a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> I could understand rep representing some of them, but fucking rioters makes you a massive part of the problem with this country. It's not justified in any way. I don't really understand uh, this one too much. Of course he's talking about you represent re representing uh, rioters, right? He's saying, right. I just really want, to, so this guy seems really confused about what you actually posted, right? So this is a misinterpretation. This is what I would like to, to uh, you know, this is a, a bias, right? Sure. He has an inherent bias that's gonna be adverse to what you truly mean and say. Sure, and that's what I saw a lot of. You know, I mean, that post was shared like more than six hundred times, or I think liked more than six hundred times and shared like three or four hundred times. And a lot of the people that took umbrage with what I said read into what I said, what they wanted me to say to be able to make their point. And, and what is, I mean is, this ahead. is the post that you are offering representation for people that were. Uh, taken into custody at the Black Lives Matter protest. Right, and what's interesting about that is it wasn't just me. I've gotten calls since this uh, from the University of Houston School of Law and the University of Texas School of Law adding me to databases of attorneys around the country that have said, hey, if you get arrested and you're out protesting, I'll represent you for free. 
I mean, I'm not the only one who did it, and I don't need a pat on the back for it. The reason it, it really was important to me is because people get arrested all the time. Hey, you're the one that threw that brick through the window. I didn't throw a brick through a window. I'm just out here saying that I don't like racism or I don't like police brutality or whatever. And to me, it's important that people be able to exercise their constitutional rights. What I found particularly frustrating about that gentleman is that he made it a point to say, well, I fought in a war, you know, I fought overseas to, uh, to protect the Constitution or something like that. And there were many, many, many military veterans who shared my post, friends of mine from Howard and from other places who said, this is exactly what I fought for. I fought for people to have the right to go and protest. And that, I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but that's the thing that infuriates me so much about these conversations is the lack of intellectual rigor and the lack of nuance. People don't realize, from my understanding, that Colin Kaepernick's protest was counseled by a former Green Beret who said, here's a way you can stand against this and not be disrespectful. And even that infuriates me, the respectability politics that we apply to inherently tense things. Why do I have to protest in a way that's comfortable for you? That allows you to cordon me off into a corner and not listen to what I'm saying. Right, and that, that ticks me off. Sets you back. That that's pushing you back in the corner. So the back of my mind, where exactly. I want you, exactly. And you're doing it in the way that I deem appropriate. And we see corollaries to that all the time in society. We tell women, if you want to be respected, women, you have to act a certain way instead of be who you are. Right? If you want to be respected, you have to act a certain way. That's garbage. And the dress same thing, a certain th way. dress a certain, a certain way. way, look a certain way. I mean, even like I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But even when we talk about the reprehensible actions in Me Too and in um, you know sexual assault conversations, people have the audacity to say if she weren't dressed this way, instead of saying how about this this jerk? Let me not curse. This jerk shouldn't have done the heinous action that he did. Like we should be able intellectually to understand that it's never her fault. No matter what she does, it's not her fault, right? And here the the same is true in, as it goes to the black community. Like I hate the idea that in order to be quote respected as a black man, I have to have a certain job, I have to be a lawyer, I have to be the first assistant, I have to sound articulate when I'm on TV, I have to have met Russell before because I was on some fancy TV show. That's garbage. That's garbage. What if I don't have a job? Don't I deserve the same respect just because I'm walking around breathing the same air you are? It should be that simple. And for this guy to think that I'm not allowed to say I want people to exercise their constitutional rights because he fought in a war is absurd because most people who fought in a war that actually understand how the Constitution works will tell you, I fought for your right to do exactly what you're doing. Thank you for doing it because I know I fought for a good reason. So that's what bothered me about that comment is it's like intellectually incongruous with what we're talking about. At some point, though, when you, when people are unwilling to take um, or hear that side of the story, right? So the if you're was it was disrespectful for Colin Kaepernick to kneel, mm -hmm. right? We've already been talking about that for years. Right. At this point, when is the time that we say enough with that talking point? that you're making that is disrespectful to the troops. Like, at this point, are they being willfully ignorant of your voice? Yes. They're yes. doing it on purpose. Not only are they being willfully ignorant of your voice, they are purposely moving the goalpost as to what is acceptable, right? That deflection is how you never have to have the actual conversation you need to have. You say, you know what? You gotta do it this way. Do it this way, uh, that's not acceptable. You gotta do it another way. You do it the other way, ah, that's not acceptable. How about you don't give me license to do it the way I want to do it? As long as I'm not committing a crime, 
I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. That's what America touts as our fundamental values around the world. We go around the world and say democratization. We want to give people the right to say what they want to say. But we live in a society now where we have no intellectual rigor. We have no nuance. And we can't have substantive conversations because of the tribalism that governs every conversation that we have. Let me calm down. I'm getting too excited. Well, then maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We, but, I, but I really, we, I think people are, are wanting to hear your voice, Matt. Really, So in, in that spirit. Yes. Uh, we have another game for you. Okay, I'm with, you. I'm with So it. I was told this morning that you're a bit of a wordsmith. Oh, Lord. I don't know about and, that. And um, some might even say a human thesaurus. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so we have a few words that we would, we want to play Matt Manning is a thesaurus game. Oh, my okay? God. All right. So I'm going to throw you a word. Okay. And you try to come up with as many as you can, other adjectives. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay so, for example, we have the word strange. Weird. Odd, abnormal, aberration, uh, anomalous. Uh, okay. That that's, six. that's it? That's okay. Six. okay. I thought okay, you have six. more. Okay. Uh, so we have another word for you. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. Incredible, stupendous, tremendous. Uh, I don't know. No, that's not bad. Four. I'm, I'm Four. That's, you're off the dome. You're, that's <laughs> all tough. off Give the me dumb. another word. Like we family. are. We got more coming. Okay. All right. What about brave? Courageous, bold, uh, impassioned, uh, fearless. That's pretty good. Next. Extra. <laughs> Me. <laughs> uh, additive, extraneous. Well, extraneous. I think it's this. What extra comes from? Um, it's extrapolated extra. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. Let me see. Uh, okay, well, do you mean extra in the colloquial sense? Or yes. do you mean extra in yes. the, like, okay, okay, extra in the colloquial I'm sense? I'm like, sure. <laughs> okay, demonstrative, um, over the top, feeling themselves, uh, like, do, doing too much. Uh-huh. Doing uh, the most. <laughs> doing the most. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go. So the this is why I wanted to play this game with Matt. So Matt is known for his million-dollar words. I just want to know the backstory on this. How? Here's the thing. Uh, we finished up at the same law school, right? Okay. I don't know these words that you, <laughs> you, you're putting out there in everyday conversations, Facebook posts. You're making people question the value of their education. <laughs> yeah, right. So I want to know. I really want to know the true story. How, how did this come about? How did the Matt Manning vocabulary really Come to the top. Dude, honestly, again, I got to go back to my folks. So it's funny because my oldest son is 10 years old, and he's like a bona fide genius. I mean, incredibly brilliant. Uh, he talks like a 20, 30-year-old. I mean, he's just his vocabulary is off the charts. And I realized that what I do with him is the same thing my father did with me. I don't ever change my language. So I don't know if it was just a matter of, like, osmosis, being around my dad, my mom, people in my life, my life reading a lot, um, honestly, but – I still have horror stories of every time I'd come in the house and say, hey, Dad, you know, Johnny and me. And he's like, son, Johnny and I. I'm like, oh, all right, grammar, right? You know, grammar and the words. And they used to make me write book reports and stuff. So I don't know. It just kind of became part of me that I liked words and I liked learning them. And it's funny. If you watch me read a book, I have to, like, write down all the words that I don't know. And I try to incorporate them so I can use them. Because I think the benefit of a big vocabulary, really the only benefit, is being able to be precise in describing things or in – relaying things if you're giving people information you can choose 
one adjective as opposed to a general adjective. And I think that gives you a little more precision in your conversation. But besides that, there's really no. It adds a little it. extra spice to like a Facebook clapback, too, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's really interesting that you say that because one of the things I find, especially on Facebook clapbacks, is the way I respond on Facebook is the way I would talk in real life. And a lot of times people want to argue with you on the like lowest level possible. So if you don't keep it there, they get exasperated. They're right? like, I, I don't want to talk to this guy anymore because he's using these million-dollar words. Right. And some of that, honestly, is purposeful. Like, not to say I'm the smartest guy in the world, but if you want to come at me sideways, well, then I'm going to show you some of the issues with not only your argument and all the, the logical fallacies, but also let you know that I'm not the one. I'm not the guy. Don't come at me sideways, um, especially because I'm going to give you this work, and I'm going to give it to you in a way that might have your head spinning. And I, you know what? Every time I, I, I scroll... Uh, on your feed and you're having a go at somebody that's really taking some deep jabs, right? Um, you engage with them and then they're not never to be heard from again. Right. They'll right. come in there and they'll throw you a little barb and then they're quiet. Yeah. Because you've, like you said, used your words to eviscerate. Yeah, you and know? you know what's, what's especially tough, I hate that I have to do this, but the reality is, especially when there's any racial tinge, when somebody is attacking me and saying something about black people or whatever, I realized that that is even more eviscerating, right? Because here they are arguing with this black guy about black people always being something, and they may feel some insecurity like, oh, he's talking over my head, right? Which creates a completely different dynamic. Because now it's not all black people are hood. It's like, who does this guy think he is? Went to some fancy college. Well, all of us aren't able. And I think that's interesting. I purposely do that to kind of have people on their heels and to say like, you know, what I thought about this guy was wrong, number one. And number two, let me not come sideways at anybody because I don't know what they got and what they're going to come back at me with. You never know. You never know. <clears throat> so I have um, a question for you. What are some of your interests in like art and music? Do you have favorite artists? Do you have favorite musicians? Like w tell me a little bit about like what's in your Spotify playlist, oh, art right. in your house. All right. All right. Million dollar question. So. I'm sure Johnny knows, and Emily, I'm sure you know as well, um, but I'm actually a multi-instrumentalist, um, and I have a lot of friends who are actually famous or played with famous musicians. I'm definitely not a famous musician, but I play keys, I play guitar. When I was in college, I actually scored a couple short films. Um, my father's a pastor, as, we said, as I said, so I grew up playing at church. So music is really important to me, but I joke that I'm stuck in like 1975, because if you listen to my Spotify, I'm a huge Earth, Wind & Fire fan, oh, best band of all time. Love it. Love Earth, Wind & Fire. I'm obsessed with Gap Band. That's oh, my Gap number Band. one. Oh, yeah. I love the Gap love Band. Love Gap Band. Shout out to Tulsa. Um, I also listen uh, to a lot of stuff from kind of that era. So I listen to groups like Pleasure, Ohio Players, mm. uh, oh. Maze featuring, featuring Frankie Beverly. Um, but you wouldn't believe this. I'm also a big salsa fan. So I love like Luis Enrique. Oh, I love like uh, also Samba, you know, Marcos Valles. <laughs> um, yeah, so I listen to a, a lot of stuff um, and I write a lot. Um, and right now, I'm listening to Thundercat. I'm sure y'all know about Thundercat mm -hmm. um, out of L.A. Um, Steven Bruner, his, his brother is a famous jazz uh, drummer, and I think their father was, too. He came out with a, a new album recently, and I love it. And then also Lewis Cole. And it's crazy. That, are y'all hip to Lewis Cole? No. Lewis Cole is a cat who went to Berkeley, who I believe might have dropped out and went to L.A., and him and Thundercat are real tight. But Lewis Cole is... Uh, I would say one of the most talented but weirdest artists out there. So all his music is incredibly dope, but it's way out in the ether. It's like really interesting stuff, and I listen to his stuff um, pretty heavily too. So <clears throat> next, we're going oh, to sorry, I was like, I thought you were gonna hop in. <laughs> Whoa, okay. 
So can you give me like three facts about you that nobody would know? Maybe it's like a quirky kind of thing that you do or a bizarre interest. We want to know what makes you different. What makes you Matt Manning? What makes you a weirdo, man? Um, right. Well, I'll t- okay, <laughs> we didn't so, want to say it, but uh, what's your freak side? Uh-huh. All right, I'll start with one that's pedestrian, and then one a little crazier, I guess, and I'll figure out the third one as I get those good. two. Two works good. Two works. No, no, I'll give you a third one. So the first one is, and this is really pedestrian, but I hate more than anything on the on the face of this earth bananas and mayonnaise, and not even in combination. But okay. I, I hate, would hope that I hate that would never come into combination. <laughs> both. You like, hate bananas? Bro, I Why? cannot stand bananas. And I have hated them since I was a baby. Something about texture. I just have never liked oh. them. Do you like avocado? No, I don't like avocado okay. either. That's a great question. Yeah, no, I don't like avocado. So I have a, I have a question for bananas. you then, too. See, okay. I have been doing this study of things that people don't like for years and years that I've met. Okay. Have you and been logging you, it? Like I mentally, mentally log what people don't like. <laughs> so just like how you did the banana and avocado connection, there's some I just gotta run down the list. Do you okay. mind? Sure. Okay, so you said you hate mayo. Yeah. Right? Poor mayo. Yeah. Pickles. I like pickles. Onions. Like onions. Garlic. Like garlic. Tomatoes. Don't like tomatoes. Why? The texture. Similar texture. Yeah. That's Slimy. why this yeah. thing because it's very it's <clears throat> the the bananas Tomatoes. What about eggplant? Oh no! Exactly. No, I knew. It. I called it. I'm cool. It's and you know texture. what's funny about that? So my better half is exactly the opposite. She loves like all of those things. Mm-hmm. And our our first child together, my son. You know, it was like a watershed moment. Like, is this dude gonna like bananas or not like bananas? <laughs> and he chose up with mama. So I'm kind of I'm kind of angry oh. at the boy. He's not even two years old yet. I'm like, son, really? You like these old nasty bananas? So every time I go to H-E-B, I got to buy these nasty bananas. Oh, you got to touch My family them. loves them. Yeah, man. I, I can't stand them. Bananas or mayonnaise. So the second thing, All which right. is super weird, that probably, I'm like the only person probably ever <laughs> who thought this, but when I was a kid, when I would like leave my room, if I had a jar, for instance, that had a label on it, like I had this, this conception in my mind that the things in my room would get up and move around like Beauty and the Beast when Indian I was not in the, in the room. Kind right. of thing. So I would like turn the jars and I would be like, y'all have fun while I'm gone. <laughs> so they can like, like face each other like I'm total weirdo, right? <laughs> like the weirdest thing. And I don't know why I did it, but probably when oh I was like, oh, oh, I have another one. And it's from when I was a kid, right? But anyway, so I did that and kind of part B to that. Uh-huh. So when I would listen to like a song on a CD and listen to it on repeat, I would think like, man, what if they were just in the studio and they were playing it every time I pressed play? So I just had like <laughs> this, this idea that there was just like a full orchestra sitting back there like, all right, I guess we got to play it again, you know? Oh, or like inside of the speaker. Yeah, yeah like I don't know. It just I was a super weird kid. And then the other thing that was really, really funny that people will probably appreciate is when I was a kid in I think second grade, we read um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And nothing in my life has scared me as much as The Headless Horseman. Really? Bro, I was terrified. I didn't want to sleep in my own room. I didn't want to sleep in a dark house. Like, I was total weirdo, like seven or eight, right? And here's the funny story. So my dad, with whom I'm very close, um, is like, well, I don't want my son to be afraid of this thing that's not real. So I'm sleeping on the floor in my sister's room one night. I guess I'm like seven, seven or eight, and I'm terrified. My dad comes in, and he was like a banker at the time. So he had a bunch of suits in his closet, and he has this suit coat over his head, and he wakes me up and he says, son, it's not real. And I'm like, yo, this dude is here to kill me. Like, take my life right now. <laughs> so to this day, every time I see I'm obviously I'm not afraid of it anymore. But it, it just makes me laugh because it was like such an irrational fear 
And I thought it was real. I thought Ichabod Crane was coming through that door. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Speaking <laughs> of irrational fears. You want me to admit to mine? No. Or you want me to ask? Yeah, I okay. think you guys should. <laughs> I think you, do you have irrational fears? Do I have an irrational fear? So I had an irrational fear of dinosaurs for decades. Really? She wouldn't watch Jurassic Park with me. I would be in tears. I would, uh, you know, have like a panic attack, um, close to like throwing up kind right. of panic. Um, I don't know why. Uh, I can't explain it. I'm sure there's some kind of weird psychological study that should be happened yeah, to me because it, it affected me well into my 20s. Right. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I told myself, I'm going to face my fear and I'm going to party with it. And what I did was we threw a party at House of Rock and we called it a night at the Bedrocksbury. It was two years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And we rented life-size dinosaurs oh, wow. to dance among like everybody the there right the party goers right. and that was my like throwing like i controlled the environment i was able to expose myself to it right and now it doesn't bother me now we can watch dinosaurs we'll go to what was it dinos alive yeah at the so fun the whatever what was it called rob's town it was the richard and borchard fair yeah they had like life-size dinosaur i was taking pictures like it was totally That's different awesome. narrative yeah but we want to we want to ask matt you know what is your had have you had a paranormal experience what is the scary scary stuff i love this stuff paranormal experience. something you just cannot explain and every once in a while you'll think about it and it'll shake you up a bit while you're thinking of it, I'm going to tell think. you, I'll tell you one of mine real quick. Okay. When I was younger, I was working at a restaurant when I was like, I guess, 19 years old. And they promoted me to be the night manager. So I would close down the restaurant at every single night. And at midnight, weird things would happen in the restaurant. And I'm not a kind of person that believes in anything weird like that. Like, okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. One night, I'm closing up shop. And I'm packing all the money away in the safe and, you know, doing the last tallies of all the receipts for the day. And I hear somebody running uh, behind me at the restaurant. Like somebody was heavily traipsing through the restaurant. But I was there alone. And I know I was there alone because I kicked everybody out and locked all the doors and turned, you know, I was there by myself. So that scared me. A couple weeks later, same thing happens again. I heard somebody running on the roof. And well, I say roof, but it was the second floor of the restaurant, which was an apartment. Mm. Uh, it was vacant for decades. Nobody lived up there. Nobody played up there. It was locked. I was I packed up and left. I mean, you've been in some scary courthouses, I'm sure. Yeah. No, no I have. And you know what's funny? <clears throat> I don't know that I've had a true paranormal experience that I can remember and I don't want to invent one for the podcast but I will tell you that I have something that very few people probably have and I'm one of the people that's afflicted by that what is it called like uh, the shining no not the shining no like <laughs> <laughs> like like well done I like that no like where you go to sleep and like your mind wakes up before oh your body. my gosh you know sleep what I'm paralysis sleep paralysis that's my whole life Matt that's her. Oh, I have to take so many precautions in order to avoid it well I don't even know what triggers it for me I don't so have this no happens idea. to you yeah it happens to me and I don't maybe not as frequently as it happens to you but at least 10, what's it like at what least is 10 it? times a year tell people what it is so what it is is like basically um physically my body's not awake so I can't move I can't get up 
but my mind is active as though I'm awake, you know? So like I can observe, well, I feel like I can observe what's around me. I can, I can hear what's going on, but I can't interact with anything because my actual body is not awake. And it's, it happens to me all the time, but the time that happened to me most substantially is the first night I was back at Howard for my sophomore year of college. I went home to Austin for the summer, I came back, I was in my dorm, and I didn't have all my stuff yet because one of my friends in D.C. had stored all my stuff, so I was going to go get it like the next day. And I was sleeping on, on the bed in my dorm room, and I had a light on, and I woke up, and it, it felt like it was literally two or three hours that I was just sitting in here, and I heard people yelling outside, and I heard things going on, and I just remember being freaked out because it seemed like no matter what I did, no matter how much I tried to will my limbs to move and get up and walk, I couldn't do it. So I'm just in this like weird purgatory space where I can't wake up. And it sounds like you have the same thing. I think um, people that are highly intuitive um, have the ability to kind of open some open some kind of spiritual door sometimes hmm. in high levels of stress or, um, you know, the new changes and adjustments can stress us out in ways that we don't even realize. And I think that's when those things happen to me hmm. most frequently. Um, it hasn't happened to me in a really long time, but it does happen if I try to go to bed before him and I'm by myself in the room. If I'm by myself, it's almost like guaranteed to happen. But if he's there, nothing happens. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that's got to be like a paranormal type thing, man, because that is pretty weird. it's really like it's really, really weird. So speaking of um, horror stories, scary things. How did you feel about the Candace Owens? <laughs> We're going to slide right into it. So this is yeah. this is the part where we need to address everything, Matt, because we had a lot of fun with you today, but I don't want to run out of time. We want to educate have, people. We want to show people, like, what can we do? I want an, a quick, well, I don't, not, yeah. I'm not constraining you to a certain time, but I want something, like, what are some do's and don'ts? to be in an ally to the community. But first, I would love to know your response to that. Candace so, Owens. I'll say this publicly on this weird corpus podcast. Wait, wait before you sure, do, what, sure. what, who is Candace Owens? Uh, what are we, let's do, let's set that okay, table, okay? okay? Let's talk about it. Candace Owens is a political commentator, right? She is a black woman and she is heavily conservative, right? So she has books appearances on Fox News. I'm sure she's got a Twitter army out there. She's doing all the things, touching all the bases. She releases a video speaking of George Floyd and his death at the hands of police officers. And she made a lengthy video um, comment commenting on George Floyd's death. So what you saw it let's 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 walk through it i was just gonna say that i would publicly challenge candace owens if she hears this podcast to a debate anytime her pleasure anywhere on any medium because i think candace owens as i heard someone say before i watched the clip candace owens sounds smart enough to sound smart and is the smartest sounding fool that you'll ever find and the reason i say that is because she makes all these false equivalencies about things, all of these logical fallacies about things, and really she engaged in a lot of the whataboutism that I see dominating our conversation these days. And what I mean is this. One of the things she says in the video, she says, black people never talk about black on black crime. 
black on black crime is a buzzword that is a completely false premise. You know why it's a false premise? Why? It's because the vast majority of crime that happens is intraracial, meaning primarily white people kill white people. Hispanic people primarily kill Hispanic people. So to single out black on black crime and then make it a straw man argument in every argument about anything else on God's green earth is false. It's just it's a it's an argument tactic that allows you to deflect from the actual conversation. Now, what I found her doing in that video is she, she tried to basically get credence by saying, oh, I'm not saying Derek Chauvin is right. He gets what is coming from him. But here are all the reasons why George Floyd was actually a bad person and why we shouldn't, you know, hold him up as this paragon of, of justice. We should seek justice for him. And I think that's BS because really if you're intellectually, you know, attuned to what you're talking about – you can have the conversation that says, yeah, we don't want people to be criminals, but that isn't what we're talking about. And if he had served his time and done whatever, that has no bearing on the price of tea in China, as they say. None. What we're talking about right now is an officer who far exceeded the bounds of force that were approved, killed this man in broad daylight for eight minutes and 46 seconds, as Dave Chappelle told us many times, heinously like an animal in the street. The conversation we need to have is about that. Everything else outside of that allows you to deflect from the actual conversation. Further than that, Candace Owens talked about, you know, people calling her a coon and an Uncle Tom and all of these pejoratives for black people who are seen outside of the monolith, right? Like they don't agree with whatever the, the general thought is for black people. But the problem with that is she comes from a standpoint of almost like black uh, a black person seeking white approval like look i'm the one you can trust to tell it like you think it is and i think that's garbage if you believe it then you believe it but don't believe it incidental to wanting some pat on the back or some approval for it and she said that and the reason i know she said that is because she said look at their perception of us i'm not concerned about your perception of me as marcus garvey said men who live in earnest don't have anything to worry about I'm doing what I think is right. I'm living the life that I think is right. And I shouldn't have to encapsulate information in a way that's most palatable for you, for you to say that the information is actually right. She said that, right? She says, well, people always talk about um, black people being the subject of police brutality. And in fact, if you're a white man who's a criminal, you have a greater chance, more than 70% chance of being you know, killed by the police, blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe that's what numerically it is, but you leave a whole lot out of context when you don't talk about the fact that black and brown communities in our country are policed at incredibly high rates as compared to white communities. That's the truth. So when you get up there and you say, black people are committing more crimes than white people, even if that were true numerically, I don't have the data, I don't think it's true, but even if it were true numerically, you lose all credibility when you don't have the context of the fact that even here in Corpus, let's just keep it 100, right? The north side gets patrolled more than King's Crossing. Mm -hmm. It's the truth. And the reality is we all know that people of all colors use drugs. People of all colors commit crimes. But the ones we talk about are black-on-black -black crimes because <clears throat> they fall part and parcel with these messages we have that allow us to constrain people, to use your word, and to keep them in this little box and to keep these narratives going that confirm our biases. And what bothered me about her is that she was completely dishonest in not adding that context and in making it sound like it was equivalent when it's really not. And in talking about the fact that, look, if 13% of the population is African-American and 25% or 24% of the people who die at the hands of the police are black, 
then that shows a very clear disparity in the number of people who are dying at the hands of the police. And larger than that, right, we need to be able to have the intellectual rigor, and stop me if you need me to, intellectual rigor to look at the fact that we're talking about police policing tactics. You don't have to think the police need to be gone completely to admit that sometimes some police officers make mistakes. I read an op-ed today in the Washington Post where a police chief said, look, the real reason we can't get rid of bad cops is because the police unions have so much power, right? Police unions have so many different um, things in their civil service commission you know, issues and in their rights that make it difficult to get rid of an officer that is committing misconduct. We can say, yeah, we need a police force. That's my personal thought. I don't necessarily think we need to dismantle the police completely, okay? I'll be honest about that. But I do think that we have had issues in policing for years that nobody wants to talk about because when you start talking about them, people get uncomfortable mm -hmm. and then they feel some kind of way and they feel like having any conversation on it is somehow part and parcel with being whatever reverse racist, whatever BS. And I think Candace Owens fell into that. And I think uh, the character assassination of George Floyd to me is reprehensible. It's reprehensible because it takes away from what you saw that is clear as day. This man was killed like an animal in the street. Right. Nothing so. he did in his life ever justified that. And if you try to find a way to justify that, it's because you want to absolve yourself of the discomfort of talking about what this man did and talking only about that. So when people are looking at that video and sharing that video and agreeing with her, um, I don't see too many of my black friends sharing that no. video or agreeing with that video. It's mostly, um, you know, white friends that I have mm -hmm. that really look to her and, uh, you know, put her forth her sentiment and, uh, and across the board want to share that with people like, Oh yes, she's speaking. Why are they using Candace Owens to? Why are they using her voice? Why? Because she's a lot of times is saying what it is they think, but because she's got black skin, they feel absolved of any responsibility of thinking that. Oh well, she here's a smart black person quote who feels the same way I do. She's speaking the truth. You need to be able to listen to it. Listen to the truth. And since it's coming from her, you should give it credibility. And all of that is garbage. And one of the other things we got to talk about is, even though I don't think we can not have a police department, we got to talk about the fact that police came out of slave patrols and that so much of our law is from a directly racist standpoint that was intended to subjugate black people. That's true, right? That's why you have all of these stories of disparate criminal justice outcomes that has been born on the, the backs of black and brown people. That's true. And when we talk about those ju like those judicial uh, disparities, we're talking about longer sentences for black people. We're talking about uh, higher bonds for black people. Right. We're talking about uh, higher patrol areas and for the same drug use, for the same yeah. types of drugs, um, and the concentration of, of policing in black communities is a direct reflection of what exactly? It's the system itself, yeah. right? Designed to uh, take black people and put them through a ringer every second of their lives. Well, and we, we don't have enough time to go through this, but from every point that black people have been in the United States of America, I mean, first, in our founding documents, in the Constitution, we're not even full people. We're three-fifths of a person, right? Because chattel slavery brought Africans here um, and 
we built an entire country alongside other indigenous people and other people here, built a country, got no credit for it, and the entire time this country has been here, we have been in the relegated to the lowest caste of society. Let's just be honest. And one of the problems we have now is we have the problem now that this is the time where you see more individual black people achieving a lot of money or whatever through athletics or through entertainment or through politics or business or whatever it may be, and you have people who are saying, see, it's no longer a problem. But that's not what we judge it by. We judge it by the outcomes educationally of kids who live in disadvantaged um, neighborhoods. For instance, I went to high school in the city of Austin in the year 2000. I went to a brand new high school, okay? It's called Aikens High School. It's brand new and they brought kids from around the community. And where I live in Austin is a primarily black and brown part of the city. If they had not built that high school in the year 2000, I would have had to go across town to a high school Right across town in Austin, a city, a metro area of a million people, because my community, they hadn't built a new high school in that area for 20 plus 30 years. That's just 20 years ago. So when we have, you know, this this revisionist history, when we don't act like Jim Crow was literally just yesterday and people were being hosed down and having dogs sicked on them and signs that said no blacks or Mexicans just yesterday, you know, we can't be um, dishonest about the fact that we're not that far removed from that, and a lot of the vestiges of that still exist. And subconsciously, there are a lot of people who still move through the space that see a black man and find him a threat and assume that he is up to no good or see a black woman and find her a drag on society, assuming she has six kids with different fathers and she's a, quote, welfare recipient. That's, we've got to be honest. That's what some people think, and that's how a lot of people operate in the world. And Candace Owens, I think, gives, um, unfortunately, gives weight to a lot of those thoughts by going on and spouting off all this BS about this guy being a criminal and all these things that are diversionary tactics from the real conversation. So the people are ser searching for her because of their of confirmation bias, which, which is the, 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 the idea that this person is confirming my beliefs, therefore uh, I am comfortable with this. And comfortable with sharing this and thank you and because she is a black woman then I am myself am not racist and these views are not racist absolutely and people don't say it don't say it brazenly but that's a lot of the reason I think there are people very frustrated with my vocalization about what I see in society because they feel like we gave you license we let you be the, the, the black guy that we put on the pedestal that we tokenized that we held up as a paragon of whatever and now that you deviate from what it is we want you to say or think or do, we have a problem with you. And it's less about me and more about the idea that I'm not given license by anybody. I say what I think is the truth, and I say my experience as a, a black man in America, and I think Candace Owens is an opportunity for confirmation bias. She tells people what they want to hear, what they already think, and she does it from the veneer of a, of a black woman and says, I don't, you know, I don't think like all these other black women, for instance, and then I'm done. She says black people are the only people who, who uh, what did she say, glorify criminals, who hold up criminals. But she didn't mention all the mafia movies we have. When people watch mafia movies, isn't that the same idea, right, what you think is glorification? Everybody likes Goodfellas or whatever, Casino or whatever these movies are. She doesn't mention those, and she doesn't mention those because she's falling into that same narrative when we don't talk about you know, the fact that there's crime in every community, there are people who are criminals in every community, and even more so than that. A police officer kneeling on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds is reprehensible, and you can't get away from that 
by any amount of trying to equivocate it to something else. I'm done. So for people that are listening, what are some ways that we can be allies to the black community? What are some do's? What are some don'ts? What, what do we need to do? What should we avoid? What are th- some maybe some things that people might think are helpful but aren't actually helpful? So first, avoid being like Jamie Kennedy and Malibu's Most Wanted. I would suggest do not do that. People ain't gonna receive you the right way. <laughs> no, um, jokes aside, you know, I, I wish I, I thought a little more intently on that. I would say honestly, one of the first things is listen, because the problem we have right now is everybody's talking on so many different platforms, but we aren't listening to each other. And I think a lot of what is happening in this point of inflection in our society is people immediately feel like black people are always playing the race card. Nobody sits down and listens to the realities of it. They don't listen to the realities that when I was 16 driving my car in Austin, giving a white girl a ride home from van, a cop pulls us over. I say, officer, am I speeding? He says, no, no, everything's fine. Young lady, just wanted to check on you, make sure you're all right. You doing okay? In 2000, right? And I haven't been thrown up against the wall, but I know a bunch of people with PhDs and law degrees and doctors who live in cities with larger black populations who have been profiled by the police and thrown up against the wall. So before you say, oh, this this isn't true, this is people that are just playing that race card, actually sit and listen because a lot of people don't think about the privilege that they have and they also don't think about the reality that a lot of black people have when they move through the space. You know, I, I've been blessed to not have some of the worst things happen to my, my life, but my father told me, son, you gotta always be careful. My grandfather, and to this day, I don't go to a store and leave without a receipt or a bag. Because he said, son, when I was coming up, if you walked out without one, somebody thought you stole it. So you always get a receipt. You always get a bag. And to this day, as a 34-year-old black man who people know to be a lawyer, I still do that because I don't want to have to answer questions of loss prevention. So when I tell you that's my experience, actually sit and listen to it. Don't try to tell me about how that's not true because you recognize me from TV or because I have some fancy job or I'm a lawyer. You see what I'm saying? And that's what happens. People say, oh, that can't be happening to you because... XYZ and the truth is it, it it's true and not only to black people obviously to other people poor people and people of color and indigenous people uh, and trans people and people on the LGBTQIA spectrum um, listen listen to what people are actually telling you is their experience and then evaluate the information that you're getting and how you're contributing to that because the reality is racism is so pernicious now in that so much of it is subconscious. A lot of it is brazen, of course, but a lot of it is subconscious. A lot of it is you see the name on the paper and you don't wanna give you know, Mr. Garcia that loan, whereas you might give it to someone else because you have this thought about Hispanic people, right? So when I tell you that's my experience, listen, number one. Number two, I had a friend reach out to me and ask me that question and I told him, one of the things you gotta do is be vigilant about attacking racist attitudes all the time. So when you're at the Y and you're playing basketball and some guy cracks a joke, I think you have a duty to say, hey man, I'm not with that. Nope, don't make that joke around me. I'm not cool with that. Because if you don't, then that person is allowed to continue making those jokes. And those jokes are what informs his interaction with people who are different than him. And then before you know it, he's the bank officer who's denying loans to black people, right? So we have to be vigilant about that. And I think we also have to be um, candid the reality is we don't have honest conversations. We seek to find kumbaya over candor every time, right? So what do you see on Facebook? We need to have solidarity. Let's quote, come together. But when people start talking about real issues, they get uncomfortable and they recoil because they don't wanna actually do that. 
They want to have some talking points and some rhetoric and move on. And we can't do that. That hasn't gotten us anywhere. So we got to keep it 100 and have the real conversations. So speaking about, like you said, with uh, on your second point, when you said, you know, you have these uh, spaces where people are free to use their um, their words and stuff, but we have to hold these racist conversations that are happening and have, have these people be held accountable for these conversations that they're having. So their space that's occupying in, you know, in white areas, right? So you have, you have a white space and they feel comfortable saying racist terms and using, you know, divisive language and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great spot for, for white allyship, right? right? They can step in, they can, like you said, you know, Right. That, I, I, don't, I don't play that game. I'm, I'm really not comfortable with you. That that takes a lot of bravery sure. to have a white person tell that to another white person. But I think that is the that's the jump off, isn't it? That's I, where it, that's where it began. That's where it, that's where it helps a lot. A, a lot. I mean, I think it, I think you make great inroads into changing people's thinking that way um and i think it's i think it's imperative especially if you claim to be an ally if you claim to be an ally then you really got to be about that life all the time and frankly the way a lot of times allyship as you said it um it comes up as an opportunity for you is when you're in spaces that are generally homogenous where people think they can say it without with impunity right i can say the n-word with impunity nope you sure can't not around me as a matter of fact you ever say that word again we're gonna have real problems people were like whoa i didn't realize you were gonna respond that way and I think that's your moral duty if you claim to be a person who is an ally. But even larger than that, you know, not to make it too nebulous, but also humanity. I mean, here's what, what it comes down to. I shouldn't have to be a perfect citizen to deserve the respect to live my life as a human being without getting murdered by the police, by whomever, right? But in this conversation, by the police. And people have to come from the standpoint of like, yo, this is per se wrong just because this is a person doesn't matter what they had in their background. This is per se wrong because he is a person. I don't think we have that enough. I think we come from the standpoint of what kind of person is this, not he is just a person. So, Matt, I just want to thank you so much for coming on our show today. Um, to the listeners out there, uh, thank you for tuning in to the Weird Corpus podcast. This is our first episode ever, and we certainly had to come out of the gate strong to uh, address some of the social issues that are rampant in, in everybody's face right now in this country during these these times right now that we're having, uh, this is a is a really historic moment mm-hmm. um, in in for our generation. Um, the young people seem to be motivated out there uh, marching in the streets for Black Lives Matter, and I couldn't have asked for. Uh, a better friend to share this conversation with and we we went deep and i'm glad it was you well i will i will end it with this but i will say you're not my friend you're my brother for life you know that you and emma i have such love i'm for your you brother guys. too no you're not <laughs> oh my Family. god that's so sweet you're my sister Family. um no I, I i super appreciate you guys letting me be on and i'll tell you that i didn't know this was your first one but i'm i'm surprised because you guys are obviously veterans at uh talking to people we're hot on the mic yeah you're hot on the mic and we're both fighting for that flaming mic (laughs) (laughs) so i i appreciate y'all much love to you guys and i'm excited to see where weird corpus goes and thank you so much for me personally because i learned so much today you know when you think you know everything you're like oh yeah i got this and then you hit me with some stuff and i was like oh 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that was to, great. No. to help energize some of that conversation. But I want to also say shout out to black women. Black women are the linchpin of this movement. They always have been. So I would be remiss if I did not say there are black women around. Black women are the, the people who started, three black women started Black Lives Matter. And what's interesting about that, and then I'm done, I promise, is when it came about in the wake of uh, Trayvon Martin's death, I believe, um, you know, you were kind of a pariah if you said Black Lives Matter. I used to ask juries about that. I would ask them about Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, to gauge kind of where p people stood politically. And almost every time I said Black Lives Matter three or four years ago, everybody kind of recoiled like, oh, you know, I don't like that idea. Blue Lives Matter. But now some of those same people are hashtagging Black Lives Matter on Facebook. So I think it's really interesting that we're at this inflection point where you finally have people who have been reticent to have some of these conversations saying, you know what, this was a bridge too far. Matt, I want to thank you for coming on again, Weird Corpus. Uh, thank you to all our listeners out there. Uh, you just listened to Weird Corpus Podcast. Thank you. I'm Johnny. And I'm Emma. And with our guest, Matt, we wish you guys uh, a good week and uh, stay uh, strong out there and uh, keep this party going. Thank hey. you all.